Citadel Armee, the Bolognese podcast, where we discuss the intricacies of the Bolognese tradition. Today's guest is Niccolo Minozzi of the Spadone Project. Actually, we are, we are uh, not so far away, you know, Reggio Emilia is like one hour from Bologna. Oh, yeah. Very nice. So you're between Parma and Modena, right? Yeah, exactly. Wasn't Vadi, uh, this, uh, doesn't, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, there was a, a Filippo Vadi who was the governor of Reggio yeah. for a while? Yeah. It has been, yeah. And also, if I remember well, uh, Degrassi, uh, he was from Modena, and I think that for some, some period he... Uh, I wouldn't say a rule, but he had uh, some kind of role, even in Reggio Emilia. But oh. it's something that I I did not uh, explore so much. So just something in my mind. So here's here's my question for you before we get serious. Yeah. So Parmesan, Parmigiano, Reggiano cheese can only come from Parma and Reggio Emilia, right? Right. Yeah. But so do you guys have a fight uh-huh. over whose is the better Parmesan Reggiano? Well, we have a lot of fights, of different <laughs> fights, really a lot. You cannot imagine how many things uh, are a matter of fight between, you know, small provinces and cities. Like, uh, oh, and oh we, we know, we know. Bologna yeah, and, and Modena fought over a bucket, so we're... Perfect. Perfect. But... Right, go ahead, go ahead. Reggio and Parma, I think, is even worse... Uh, starting from nicknames and the other kind of foods is really, really in our blood. I mean, it nice. Is. The smaller the stakes, the bigger the fight, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, um, so I, I'm going to keep that part in because it's a, it's brilliant. But <laughs> I, I want to go ahead and introduce our guest today. So our, uh, our, our guest today is Nicolo Men- Menozzi. Uh, Nicolo is, um, everybody probably knows him more from his social media moniker, which is the Spadone Project. Uh, Nicolo, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Stephen. Welcome, nice to Nicolo. Be here. Great to have you here, man. Yeah, it's it's an honor to have you. Um, so, Nicolo, tell us a little bit about your martial arts background and how you got started in historical martial arts. Yeah, sure. Uh, actually, it's not very much. Uh, I've started in 2016, uh, just after high school, uh, when when I was at university. Uh, basically, because uh, uh, I always been a nerd, and so uh, I came actually from a Warhammer background. I I assume you know what I'm talking about and uh, yeah. always been uh, an empire passionate so uh, <laughs> that translated into renaissance passion and uh, at some point in time uh, I I had a friend that started um, doing some HEMA in Reggio Emilia and he asked me to to join the club and so uh, I I joined the the first training 
and it was pretty interesting so I got into into HEMA even though uh, my club, my actual club that is uh, the same uh, you know right now uh, doesn't focus on uh, Renaissance uh, fencing but rather um, is focusing on Fiore, Fiore Delivery in general in medieval fencing uh, even though I have always been more interested in the Renaissance. So I got the opportunity to get into HEMA and learn something. So for like a year, uh, I followed what was going on in the club. And then uh, I decided in 2017 to delve deeper into the sources and stuff that I consider more uh, fascinating and so I got personally with the um, Marozzo and some other sources uh, like Figueredo, Figueredo and uh, yeah because I prefer I much prefer uh, big swords uh, if compared to <laughs> the normal long swords you know everybody yeah. everybody <laughs> play with long swords right. is interesting to get into something different uh, now and then you like big yeah. swords and you cannot lie. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So I, on the topic of, of big swords, what, what is a spadoni? Uh, and at what point does a long sword become a spadoni? Because I think, you know, in, in uh, Swinger's most recent translation of, of Manciolino, uh, he gave this really interesting anecdote of a, uh, a court case that happens. And there's this, there's this small city showdown, probably over cheese or wine or a bucket. <laughs> And uh, in, in the middle of the brawl, somebody pulls, somebody just kind of like enters the fight uh, with, with a two-handed sword and hits this guy in the head. And so there's this witness account of this trial. And the witness is like, he had a two-handed sword or a spadone or a great sword. I can't really tell the difference. So what is the difference? Uh, it's an interesting question. Mm, there's a difference, but probably we should search the difference in the actual uh, tools, in the weapons, and uh, it's really difficult to uh, spot the difference just by the written sources, uh, at least for what concerns the, the chronicles and the kind of source uh, like this one you are mentioning rather than the fencing one, because usually we have uh, more contextual information inside uh, a fencing manual. So, for example, in Marozzo, we have the images to make some conclusion about the kind of sword. We have, uh, for example, Pietro Monte describing the, the length. So, this is easier. And we can say for sure that, at least in medieval time, uh, from a linguistic point of view, in Italy, uh, the most used term was spada due mani, so uh, two-handed sword, and it described uh, the shortest word that we uh, nowadays call long sword, just because it was the more uh, common and uh, widespread kind of uh, long weapon uh, in terms of swords, and probably because uh, it developed in a time when chivalry was uh, more prominent in uh, warfare. So 
was a knight weapon mainly. Uh, but as we come to the end of the 15th century, uh, we begin to see uh, longer swords. And uh, probably one of the motivation is that uh, there's a rise of interest and uh, um, display of uh, infantry on the battlefield. Mm -hmm. So the warfare changes a bit and there are new way of conducting war. And so uh, there's, a, there's a twist in linguistic because so far we had just the 200 zor with a given length, but then we have a zor even longer. And so if a 200 zor uh, is the bigger zor we can have, we need to find a new name mm. to call what was uh, previously the, the longs of the 200 zor. And so uh, we know for sure that in uh, six, uh, sorry, in 1526, uh, we have an Italian source using for the first time the term spadon. So we know that, for example, that at least 10 years before Marozzo, we already know that in Italy, spadone was uh, a term used. And um, I don't know if you know the Anonimo Ricardiano, mm -hmm. another... Uh -huh. uh, the dating is debatable right now, at least my opinion uh, over the research done uh, crossing the source with other sources I have found. I have the impression that um, that manuscript should be dated to uh, the last decades of the 15th century. Mm -hmm. And the uh, Ricardiano uses the term spadone, so probably we're mm. talking about a sort already uh, classified as it Mm, during the last, mm, you know, should we say medieval time? I know it is modern age because uh, uh, America was already discovered, but uh, for some reasons is still uh, a medieval context. So Spadone is usually uh, related to, to the Renaissance, but actually was already a thing during the last part of uh, medieval time. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is also interesting because uh, knowing the length of the sword described by Pietro Monte, probably we should uh, consider it already spadone. And uh, the fact that he doesn't use this term to describe the sword is just because um, he is using Latin. And in Latin, spadon mm -hmm. spadonis uh, is a eunuch. Eunuch? Yeah. Exactly, like a guy with no balls. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, of course, uh, he could not use the. You could not All use right. the. Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. Your right. Hit him with your it's unit. A... <laughs> <laughs> oh man, beautiful. Well, maybe maybe it would have actually worked out really well, right? Because Monty always throws those rising blows, so maybe he made yeah. a few eunuchs in his day, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. Um, I discussed this topic. Uh, I discussed this topic with Jangos Winkel, is another researcher uh, of big swords in Germany, and probably uh, too deep into research to have a discussion. Uh, it's been a while since the the last time I uh, I did some uh, you know uh, focus on this specific 
part, but there were other linguistic interesting links between the, this fact of having Spadone and Spadonis, uh, which is the eunuch, and uh, this this stuff of rising cut and some German uh, nomenclature of the blows, uh, really really interesting. <laughs> Uh, however, the, the term comes from uh, uh, the blade used to to cut the balls. Ah, okay. Oh, yeah. interesting. There are okay. some uh, old. Uh, so, um, <laughs> all is all related. At least that's, it's funny to think that uh, <laughs> it is. Yeah. That's great. Um, it, yeah, go ahead. And so I think that. Uh, yeah, Monte doesn't use this the the word spadone, but uh, the length suggests that is already a spadone, and also the context of the treatise suggests that uh, is a military, is a warfare weapon, not mm. just a civil one. And so this should describe and explain the length and some of the way he suggests to use the sword mm. and the way that mm, sorry the fact that uh, his teachings are really. Uh, condensed there's not uh there's not much because probably the intention is to uh teach to soldiers and people that need to practice on the field rather than for example on a duel mm -hmm. and this changed the play uh, at least in my opinion it, it, it changes plays and um with us uh yeah the first the first manuscript uh, of the of the Monte book was written in Spanish, mm -hmm. and we know that from some sources in uh, in the Iberian Peninsula, the name used for this word was Espada de dos Manos, or in mm -hmm. Portuguese uh, Espada de ambas Maos, and so probably the translation in Latin was really adherent to the Spanish version. But we know that even in the Iberian Peninsula, uh, especially some decades afterwards, uh, the Espada de dos Manos is not specifically the medieval one, at least mm -hmm. is the medieval one, and at the same time could describe the montante. So linguistically, it's really difficult to tell differences. Uh, but just to conclude, uh, if, he, if we want to have some uh, characteristics in order to uh, make a division, I find really interesting the, the cataloging method uh, found by Jan Goswinkel. This is based upon like five or six uh, specifics. And if Azurds matches at least three of them, mm -hmm. you can tell is some kind of great swords. Should be Spadone, Montante, Schlachtwert, or whatever. And these characteristics are at least one meter and 50 centimeters length, uh, two kilos at least of weight, uh, the presence of Alsetti. Uh, the presence of a leather covering on the Ricasso and oh. uh, the other one is uh, mm, just a second 
Did not know they had leather coverings on the Vicante. Uh, some of them is uh, is a characteristic specifically uh, German, oh. not so not so common. But if one delve into uh, printing and uh, other non fencing uh, sources, uh, you can uh, you can find it. Oh yeah, the the last one is the presence of the rings on the guards. Mm. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So I I think one of my did the did the Germans start adding that leather handle after. Uh, you know, the Swiss are making fun of him. One of my favorite anecdotes that you have ever posted was about how the Swiss used to make fun of the Germans uh, because the Germans would carry their swords tucked up underneath their arms. Oh, yeah. And when they would when they would push into them, they'd stab the guy behind them rather than carrying it on their shoulder. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but that was um, was about the short sword. Yeah. The Katzbalger, yeah. yeah. The Katzbalger, not about Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but it's interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting source. <laughs> so the key difference that we're looking at is there's a sword, which we'll call longsword, I guess, which is essentially a sidearm. So it's worn primarily. Yeah. And then there's a sword which is more like a polearm, but it's made out of steel. And that's a Spadona greatsword. That's kind of the, mm-hmm. seems like the distinction. One's a primary weapon, then one's a sidearm. Would that be reasonable? Probably yeah, Monte is uh, is the kind of pole arms, mm-hmm. pole arm one, and the reason is that in fact uh, during that period uh, Swiss uh, soldiers had already like one century of experience in foot battling, so mm-hmm. uh, at least. Uh, to the other side of the Alps, um, infantry was um, probably more developed rather than in Italy. And mm-hmm. this is probably one of the reasons why we have so much uh, German manuscripts about fighting with, uh, with long swords, mm-hmm. because to some degree, they, uh, they took the medieval tradition and try to apply it to a different kind sword. of sword. Okay. Yeah, and f- an example is the the Goliath manuscript. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It get from the, if I remember well, it is from the Lichtenauer uh, tradition. But if you if you check the images, the the side of the sword is pretty Huge. big. Yeah, they're yeah. about shoulder height. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they matches. Uh, even older uh, images from a Swiss chronicle, uh, Berner Chronic, uh, that depicts a, at least one image with some soldiers uh, gather, uh, gathered close to, to a banner, to a flag, some of them carrying longsword to the side with a sheath, and uh, some of them carrying an even uh, sorry, longer swords uh, on the typical, uh, you know, tip on the ground and hand on the handle. Uh, yeah, so, and this is dated like uh, the 70s of the 15th century. So okay. even okay. before Monte, even before Monte, uh, I guess mm. that in some way maybe Germans, in particular Swiss uh, soldiers, influenced the Iberian Peninsula uh, tradition, in fact, of weapons, because we know from some sources we have from the Reconquista 
in particular the last decades so um, some years before uh, the the conquest of granada so the final act of the of the reconquista we know by a fact that some documents uh, report the presence of swiss and german soldiers among the the mm. spanish and so you know if you think about it there are a lot of links we know that monte uh, probably went to to spain for mm. some time was uh, he was uh, knowledgeable of the Spanish ways of fighting. And so there's this kind of triangle, Italy, Spain, and Germany, all uh, you know, linked by the Italian wars mm-hmm. that yeah. burst during yeah, the 90s of the 15th. So it's really interesting because if you begin thinking about it, is way more difficult to tell this is Italian fencing tradition, this is Spanish-Italian, tra- uh, sorry, uh, Spanish fencing tradition and so on, because there's so much going on during that decades and uh, is just a moment where we know not so much about fencing, actually. Mm-hmm. If you think about it, we just have Vadi, Monte, nothing really, at least for uh Spain and Italy. So mm-hmm. I think we need to know more about the context in order to understand better what's going on inside the treatises. You're talking about the yeah, late pre- 1400s, early 1500s period? Like, okay. Yeah. 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 There's not a lot there. Yeah. Once, so, once Manchelino starts, has his printing, and then, then it looks like everybody and their mother wants to publish a treatise or write a treatise or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, it, it became cheaper, so it, it was m- more accessible for to kind of put your ideas in print. Um, I mean, basically, there's like nothing, and then there's Manchelino, and I kind of think the Anonimo Bolognese comes right after Manchelino, and then Marozzo's around comes right after that, and Altoni, and uh, you know, and then Vigiani, and then it just keeps. Then there's just you know, a good explodes, yeah. 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 I have a kind friend living in Switzerland that is actually. Uh, conducting some research uh, with the timeline, timeline based, and trying to put together as many information about uh, fencing treatises and other events and stuff going on in Europe during the uh, the 16th century, and awesome. uh, is writing a paper about um, the way the printing diffusion had Mm -hmm. an impact on fencing and uh, i haven't read already what he's writing but is really promising uh really interesting he gathered a lot a lot of information like uh you know uh, pandemics uh, and uh, fluctuation of uh, costs of paper and all that kind of stuff like all the data points Man, I need to talk to him. I just spent like, yeah. <laughs> I think it was like 12 hours the other day trying to find what, what a ream of paper cost in like 1530. <laughs> no joke. Oh, man. That's amazing. I get, that's, I'm excited about that paper yeah. or book still, or still however he's going to publish. Figure out the best, the best strategy for just describing how much money it was worth. I like to go by wages, but you know, like there's, you know, you can do yeah. any old system. You mean, uh, 
Zorts or uh, no, like when you're talking about like what does a ducat equal in modern money, right? Because we could say, oh, he's does, oh. they had a head a price on his head of two thousand ducats. That means nothing to us now unless we know what does a ducat buy or what is a ducat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you can get that sense to, for people. Well, at least we, for example, we know from uh, Reinhard Baumann uh, mm -hmm. is a writer, a German writer who wrote uh, the book that. I think is the best one you can read about Langsnecht. Mm -hmm. um, he tells us that uh, a soldier uh, had four uh, golden no, uh, florins. I don't remember the name of the okay. uh, the value. However, uh, four uh, four bucks, <laughs> let's say four <laughs> bucks in a month. And, uh, for example, a pike uh, uh, would have cost one. Okay. One. Yeah, just one. One gilder like, one, or one. florin or whatever. Yeah. Okay. And um, we do not have much information about the cost, for example, of big swords. We have something for, the Scot uh, for Scotland, uh, some information about... Uh, taxes for uh, for Spain, but is not is not clear if we are talking about like some kind of taxes percentage applied mm -hmm. to the to the cost of goods. So we have this right. like long tax, list right. of yeah, or if is actually like uh, mm. the most pricey cost you can apply to, for example, the blade of uh, of swords. Uh, but if you're interested, I can get some more data from the archive right now because, uh, uh, you know, I have dug so many information that <laughs> sometimes yeah. it's really difficult to, to remember everything. Just a moment. Yeah. So I know it, the Venetian soldiers' infantry were, they got 30 ducats per year, but that was the total cost. So that would include all their deductions for food and equipment and everything like that. I don't know how much they actually ended up with in pocket. I wonder if that was also after the devaluation of the ducat, though. Because, I mean, when we're talking about, like, 16th century, there was the there was the great silver crisis, or the gold crisis. And at some oh. point, they switched over to the lira because you just couldn't... All the ducats were given to, to China. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> is that what happened? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and international trade. This is another conversation that uh, Jean and I had. <laughs> so, he... Uh, yeah, I... So when I when I was trying to figure out the the value of currency, um, the ducat um, went through like this crazy valuation shift where um, even like the minor currency, it's it's hard to determine how much of the minor currency actually makes up the value of a ducat. Right, and you have to do it based on specifically based on the year, because there were two gold crises that ended up happening, and it was from Venetians when they were trading with. Uh, China and various like Near Eastern uh, countries, they would only accept gold. So the Venetians started basically just sequestering as many gold ducats as they possibly could and replacing them with silver, so that way they could continue their like Far East trade. Ah, oh. and it, it caused these like gold crises. Uh, it was pretty crazy. Okay, I've got some some information. For example. We have a document uh, 1664, so it's okay. really, um, really late one. Then after a period, yep. 
Yeah, uh, we have blades for Spadone. Um, they were taxed three soldi and nine denari. Um, and we can compare them with, for example, the taxation of other kind of blades. Uh, for example, um, a fencing blade, so something like our mm -hmm. nowadays uh, Fellerschwert, uh, they were taxed like uh, 11 denari, mm -hmm. and the soldo is way more costly. So, for right. example, the Spadone blade is three soldi and nine denari, while the, the blade for fence is just... 11 denari. I don't know, uh, I don't remember the, the exact, you know... Mm. 20 and 12, right? It's like pence and shilling. I think. Let's check me. Uh, or is it is it is four? It 20, one, 20, one soldo, one soldo is uh, 10 denari oh, and 10 a half. Denari. Mm -hmm. Okay, got it. Interesting. And for example, the, the blade for a halberd, the same period was like taxed three soldi. So... You see, the taxation of a blade for Spadone was pretty much the same as an Albert. Okay, okay. but fencing a fencing blade was pretty cheap. Yeah, yeah. I think you know, it's just a tool. Right, uh, and it's gonna break. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, the difference today is like if you think about uh, the difference in price between uh, a feather and some kind of replica like, is right. like. You pay so much, so much more to have the replica. Right. Like a That's sword awesome. that you were actually going to take and fight in a duel with, you'd probably spend 10 times as much on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so cool. you were saying that the Spadone is basically, for the most part, as we understand it, a battlefield weapon. Um, and one of the things that like really, really that I came across when I was researching um, that made me really want to bring you on is I read this anecdote and I thought, specifically about you right mm -hmm. and it was um so i was i was researching the battle of zanganada and then i i came across an account of the battle of carmagnola and this is basically what it's talking about this is from a record about angelo della pergola's uh sort of like his his action there in, in 1422 um it says at the end of the month four thousand swiss uh, awaited the Visconts, which is the Visconti, on the plain of Arbedo. Uh, Della Pergola is in command of the second group. His assaults, he assaults the opposition with his men at arms. The charge is so well thought out that the standard bearer of the Lucerine forces abandons the insignia on the ground. The Swiss, however, recompose the square of pikemen. They throw themselves into the midst of the ducal cavalry, cavalry armed with halberds and large two-handed broadswords. With their weapons, they disembowel the bellies of the mounts and make 400 knights fall to the ground and finish them off. Um, so when it comes to dealing with cavalry, is this something that was kind of a common occurrence that you've seen in your historical research where like two-handed swords were used as an offensive weapon against cavalry or something along those lines? Uh, actually, no. I mean, uh, I think this is the, the only information we have uh, about... Um, in event like this, so uh, the use of big swords to, to fight cavalry. But um, while writing my book, I came to a similar conclusion um, just by trying to analyze uh, why at some point in time they decided to uh, improve the length of a sword 
I mean, you have the long mm-hmm. sword. What's what's the meaning of having uh, a longer sword that, of course, has more reach but is heavier and uh, more difficult to handle properly and to be effective? And you usually think uh, about the the thing that everybody knows about chopping the pikes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I concluded that it doesn't make much sense. Uh, for example, if you think about Maroso, uh, it's just one of the one of some manuscripts. Uh, sorry, manuscripts. Uh, one of the treaties telling you that usually, if you need to face uh, a hafted weapons, you are in trouble. Unless you have an afted weapons, and as long as you can have uh, a great sword, it's not going to be uh, it's not going to be as long as a hafted weapon. And so I did not buy so much the story of the pike chopping. So I thought, why having a longer and heavier blade? And so I came to the conclusion that maybe. The reason was that when first Swiss decided to uh, get to infantry tactics, they had to face uh, the Burgundian cavalry. And so in the first years of, of the wars against, the, against Burgundy, they faced in many famous battles uh, cavalry, and they needed a way to... Uh, you know, make more heart to the to the horses. And what I could think about is if you have a longer blade, maybe you have more reach to get to the leg of the of the horse and more impact uh, to fight against someone with an armor. And we of course know that uh, unless you pick your sword with the tip in order to get to the male, you are not going to. Uh, get you know mm-hmm. inside uh, the cuirass but at the same time if you have more weight you you can use it like a concussion sword of sort mm-hmm. something like that and so my impression is that maybe uh, aside from the fact that probably swordsmanship uh, sorry swordsman's myth improved so mm-hmm. they were able to uh, improve the steel of the blades and have longer blades and this is one topic that uh, Neil Melville talks about inside his book I don't know if you know this book it's mm-hmm. really it's really interesting let me uh, The Two-Handed Sword History, Design Ooh. and Use is probably the best book you can buy about this topic so far uh, I'm in contact with uh, with the author itself. He's uh, a really nice person, and he has done a really great job. And he's, he talks about this improvement in uh, in the cast, you know, the um, the factory, the the production mm-hmm. of steel. And this is one of the reasons. But the other one is okay. You can do it. You have improved the technology, but why do it? And I think that one of the reason was. Uh, Let's find a way to be uh, impactful and uh, effective against non-armor uh, soldiers and at the same time 
making making a chance to uh, at least slow down uh, heavy armored infantry and cavalry because you know if you are a poor swiss soldiers with just a cuirass maybe a helmet but not a complete armor and you need to fight against uh, a burgundian uh, knight even if on foot you don't want to get closer to him because you are almost dead 99 percent i guess right and so having a blade of a length like one meter and 80 swinging around could be a way to at least stop maybe make someone uh, go to the ground because of a hard blow to the head and have more people around you uh, finish the work with daggers and mm -hmm. uh, short weapon with uh, you know stingy point yeah yeah, it's interesting, right? Like, I mean, it does seem like it was almost like a combined arms style of thing. Um, you know, um, there's an interesting, I don't know if you've ever looked at Paladini's Spadone. I mean, it's like, it's a paragraph, but he has um, Spadone against Pike in in, uh, in his um, book. I think but. I did not read it because it's one of the manuscripts without... Uh without uh, an online source correct yeah yeah okay i know yep. it by never never have the chance to read so i actually i think it's kind of interesting it kind of leads into our next question so i'm gonna i'm gonna actually just read a section because it's it's super short it's just a, a very small paragraph and then I'll, I'll get into this next question here but it says um with this present discussion and the subsequent figures i will demonstrate what a well-practiced spadone is capable of against a pike it all consists in the pommel hand to make an example, let us suppose the enemy attacks your head with a pike while you stand in guard. By lowering your pommel hand, you will lift your point, protecting your head. In contrast, if he faints high in order to attack low, you should raise your pommel hand, thereby lowering the blade to defend yourself from this thrust, as shown on the following page. And then he gives sure. two figures, um, basically, of just kind of think about like windshield wiper, just kind of like turning, turning off like pike attacks if they're attacking either high or low. Um, and just kind of creating this like wheel of defense in front of him. Um, and it, it's interesting because, uh, and, and the reason I think this leads into the next question is because um, against thrusting pole arms, the Bolognese sources tell us to put one hand between the big hilt and one hand between the little hilt. Um, is this kind of, so I guess the, the question is, is, is this typical, like where we see this kind of action on, where either it's from a blade action, the hand on blade and hand on hilt, or is it sometimes, is it, can it be that, that sort of like two hands on hilt to sort of deal with pole arms and pikes? Well, let's say that, uh, for instance, what Maroso says about the fighting with a, with a hand on the Ricasso, uh, if I remember well, is, uh, is unique in the sense that uh, no one else is actually, for example, in Iberian uh, tradition or uh, later like Alfieri, no one else is talking about this probably because if you're not uh, into fighting with a pike is not some is not the most effective way to uh, to use this kind of weapon. So uh, when you know that, probably you are getting a bad time against an after the weapon no other 
masters are spending time in describing it because wasn't something uh, wasn't something common. Uh, the places where people used afted weapons uh, were not the same uh, when Spadone and the other big sword were uh, displayed on battlefields or you know skirmishes because uh, they they are effective in different ways. Uh, one is the the pike, for example, the hafted weapon is more suited to uh, less dynamic scenarios mm -hmm. like formations, while uh, a big sword is most effective in skirmishes and places where you have all the space you need to swing and move. And we have actually uh, some Italian sources suggesting that this is the case. And so uh, getting back to the, to the question, um, Probably one of the hidden parts in treatises that uh, somehow mm, relate to this is, for example, if I remember well, uh, Agrippa mm -hmm. telling that you can use the Spadone like an after the weapons. And in, in some way, this uh, can suggest us that we can grip the Ricasso, you know, and swing in some other different ways uh, performing with the tip on front and uh, other sources could you make use of the high guard uh, is not a term used by the by the treatises but uh, is something that is found even in some artworks some paintings having the it's like the ox for german mm -hmm. tradition sure, yeah. or the guardia d'intrare of marozzo Okay. And usually it's considered the most effective guard you can keep while using Spadone for um, a good uh, number of reasons. And the first one, of course, is that it covers the head, it covers the body. You can use the blade diagonal in order to uh, cover and prevent people to get uh, below you because, uh, you know, you are using the tip to point rather to the head of the opponent or some way uh, to the ground so that the opponent cannot uh, bind the blade because if you use something like the ox and you are using a way more heavier weapon than the usual longsword, mm -hmm. uh, you cannot use momentum. So you are really slow in order to mm -hmm. uh, make your move after the opponent try to bind so you are lost because yeah. as soon as you get the blade, it can get in, especially mm -hmm. if he has some kind of buckler of shield. And pointing the tip to the ground is a good way to close the way uh, under the blade. So, and this is something, for example, told by Godino. He tells that um, is a way to stop the enemy. And you are uh, fast enough to move the tip up in order to thrust if you mm -hmm. need. And yep. yeah, basically even Di Grassi, even if Di Grassi is famous because uh, he has this 
absolutely in my opinion stupid uh, technique of uh, trying to trust with a, with just with a hand, hand. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but i think it's not the the most interesting part of the treatise because uh, he makes some more interesting uh, observation about what usually is done with spadone it, it he doesn't describe exactly what you should do, but uh, you can find mm, description of the motion uh, involving this high guard that is basically uh, that's differently from longsword. When you give a, a cut, you do not stop the blade mid midway because it's harmful to your own body because it's heavy. Uh, is a good way to lose uh, momentum and to get again bind by your adversary and so there is this motion with for example defendente that need to cut uh, all the diagonal direction and do not doesn't stop but rather uh, swing back with like uh, a twist over the head of the fencer and with the tip in front so that's, so that's an interesting. Oh, so I was gonna say that's different than Marotta, where you, you're. I mean, he's using Ospedone, but he's in the bind plenty. Like it, that, that is kind of how he says you're going to end up fighting anyway. So that, and I guess maybe that's how we might define the difference between like a great sword or something like that. It's one that you are never supposed to stop. Yeah, and but if you, there's another point that I find interesting is that. Uh, nowadays, we tend to practice with really uh, light weapons, mm -hmm. and this enables us to perform the techniques uh, way faster. But we we did, we ignore the fact that if we try to uh, use the same kind of technique described by Maroso with something that, for example, weights like two kilos and more it changes drastically the the whole pace of the actions you can do the same things but you realize that some of the interpretations that we use are different because you cannot do some of the stuff so quickly and okay. so you know break so much the action without trying to swing and follow the momentum of the blade and uh, yeah i find it interesting because if you take a look of some of the oldest spadoni we have and mm -hmm. just recently i had uh, i spent quite some time to analyze all the all the specimen that i was able to gather for uh for the chapter of, of my book about the uh, the shape and the styles of the zords you keep like this mm, 15 maybe more zords for of the first decades of the of the 16th century and you find out that they are pretty long they are pretty heavy and even for example maybe you know that famous 200 sword that is uh inside the collection in Brescia of uh mm -hmm. museum of the martial arts of roberto mm -hmm. gotti yeah uh, is really a nice sword it's it seems to be really nimble and you know the silhouette is not the kind of uh, heavy spadoni that usually one have in mind and is like uh, 
150 centimeters long so is not is more than a longsword but it weighs more than two kilos mm-hmm. i know that balance is another element to consider but uh some other swords are more balanced toward the tip and the, what i find really interesting for hemis today is to try practicing marozzo with a heavier swords changes the pace uh, changes some of the actions and uh, even the bind when it's there changes the ways and if you if you if you read the some of the Giocolargo uh, plays the assaults mm-hmm. there's a lot of stramazzone and some swing there's a lot of Giocolargo and everything at least my point of view can suggest that the sword is heavier and all this swinging and using the the wrist in order to mm-hmm. perform the cuts is due to the fact that the sword is heavy and so you are trying to use momentum and with the first cut for example you beat the sword and use that energy to uh, make the second and you actually do not need so much to use your muzzle to to have the the work done because the the weight of the blade makes much and of course this is just the result of some of my experiences i had the opportunity to spar some years ago with my friend federico malagutti with heavier blades and yeah totally different really yeah I, another word i think i i know that mike pendergast in in particular has basically switched to only performing monty with mm-hmm. like period appropriate swords for that specific reason like i mean he's he's adamant about that um kind of going back to <laughs> the the earlier analogy about poking the people behind you with your swords so when you were going into battle with a, a, a two-handed sword, like a, a, a spadone or a great sword, you usually carry it on your shoulder, right? That's how you yeah. kind of carry it into battle. Do you think that Morazzo's use of Gordia de Testa, the way that he uses it, especially at the beginning of the uh, Gioco Largo section, and even his treatment of it in Book Three, uh, um, in his his, uh, or, excuse me, in his um, yeah, and well, in his third section of of the the two-handed sword is specifically because that would be the first position you would take if you were bringing your sword off of your shoulder. A good question. I don't have a actually it's, I don't have an answer to this. It it's been a weird theory that I've had like cooking in my head for a long uh, time and I just I just remembered it. So I just uh, want to throw it out there. But I I think that you know Maroso was um if I remember well he was not a noble he was mm-hmm. just a citizen of of Bologna. I think the context was more civilian, and to some degree, uh, we should take in consideration the fact that uh, there was um, interest in uh, arts and some um, movements and. Uh, behaviors related to looking good mm-hmm. and we have a good amount of um, sources not fencing related but also fencing related describing 
uh, parades and uh, fanfares and events in cities where people were displaying their abilities with the swords. For example, uh, we have some festivity in uh, in Spain uh, described by Pedro Moya Montes, sorry Pablo Pablo Moya Montes, uh, who recently wrote an interesting book about Montante and the Spada de los Manos for AJ Editora. Um, and he described this place sometimes even with fireworks attached to the blades. Okay. And yeah, <laughs> we have already, um, we still have some German manuscripts with images of like Dussacs with like, <laughs> <laughs> little cylinder of something like the the chunks you use to uh, to switch on the barbecue, you know, to light up the <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. the BBQ, uh, sticked to the blade in order to make fire during the night and have all this interesting, uh, you know, play to to make people enjoying the uh, I don't know saints uh, festivity and the like so we always need to keep in mind that uh in the renaissance there was already uh a big part related to uh i would not say sport but was more yeah was more than going to battle and one aspect that is even more important is that at least in my opinion, at least to my, according to what I was able to find and read, firearms were really, really widespread in Europe, probably more than we think, or at least more than the usual uh, Himais today realize. For example, we have documentation in Venice, uh, mid uh, 16th century, so 1550. Mm-hmm. Uh, documentation from uh, from the government uh, complaining about the fact that pistols and small guns like wheels gun and stuff were so widespread that was really uh, a problem for the Republic because apparently everyone was uh, going on during the night with a cloak with uh, I don't know five pistols something like that <laughs> and uh, and masks and if you think about it uh, if you want to kill someone you oh, yeah. want to use a gun and not a sword so this right. changes everything all the context that we usually talk about uh, if you are in the city and you want to fight with the sword no you have your gun under the cloak and uh, so much widespread. And we also know that, for example, Venice, already in the 15th century, uh, had prizes for people attending a competition, but with a crossbow or the mm-hmm. gun, not with a blade. So yeah. I always keep this in mind. Uh, black powder changed everything. Yeah. Fr- I will push back on one thing, though. I, I'm not, like, even though Murazzo wasn't inherently noble from from what we know about the early period of his life, the fact is that he trained under De Luca with Guido Rangoni, 
which means that he was privy to training in a noble sphere. So he might have been like a Bentivoleski. He might have been associated with the Bentivoglio family in some way, whether that was from a security standpoint or from like, and he was also buried in a military hospital. So from, um, as far as I know, that would also be like, he had to have had some sort of military service on behalf of the city of Bologna. Uh, in order to sort of have that honor and that right. So that's just a little bit there. Yeah, but, um, I mean, I want to be clear, to be clear sorry. Um, I'm not stating that is everything fake and stuff. Yeah. Uh, just that usually we tend to uh, dive too much into pretending that, that what we find in the, in the fencing material is... 100% effective and always right. uh, meant to be used in battle or in a duel because uh, there's so much going on uh, behind the, the pages, you know. Is, yeah. Uh, it's, well, I, I think like from our perspective, like there's a lot of like show is kind of an important part of especially Renaissance Italian culture, like how you look, how you sure. comport yourself. And maybe the, we don't, showmanship is less important in kind of modern culture where it's just like, can you do and so maybe that's a, a a cultural disconnect that we're not getting when we're looking at these manuscripts that maybe they understand what is really for show and what's actually the useful bits yeah yeah and another thing is that they they had more uh they had a repetition culture hmm. you know reputation uh, culture uh, right uh, not just repetition but also repetition you know repetition repeat. Yeah, uh, yeah, if you think okay. about uh, craftsmanship, for example, an artisan mm -hmm. making something, uh, they oh, yeah. they had no factories in the modern sense of the mm -hmm. of the term. So uh, they practiced so much from an early age to get to some results, and uh, I guess many times was so repetitive the same small action and stuff in order to get to that high level of precision that we mm -hmm. find in for example uh all kind of artworks and objects yeah. Yeah. and stuff yeah, yeah. and the same can be said to be applied to fencing so i can imagine they did a lot of what today we hardly want to do repeat, 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 repeat. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, spar no sparring, no sparring, no, just repeat no the action. Just, yes, but go do that's, a that's actually, for an hour. <laughs> that's brilliant, yeah. though. Like, I, I've never really thought of it that way, right? Because that's how, like, the, the old masters used to train in Florence, right? Like, we think about all the Florentine painting yeah. masters. That's what they would do. They would copy the, mas the, like, the master works of their master. So... And they would they would constantly make copies right. and make copies until they were good enough that then they could assist the master on creating a masterpiece. And then eventually they would they would earn their way into, you know, being a master themselves and they could yeah. go on and paint whatever. Um, it was based on memory. It was, it was yeah. Memory. Yeah, no, but I mean that's that's really interesting because I've always kind of like drawn this parallel between Manchilino and Morazzo that like Morazzo is holding up a masterpiece. Like he's showing you the assaulty because it is a complete masterpiece of it shows you the entire tactical paradigm. It shows you all these different things. Whereas authors like Manciolino or Dallagocchie, uh, they teach you the, the brushstrokes, you know, they teach you the individual like actions that kind of help you get to a masterpiece. And that's why I've always seen them as good beginning 
um, are good sources for beginners. But for Morazzo to do that, it, it almost shows, and, and this might, I, I think this kind of speaks to what you had said, and I find it fascinating is that it kind of like, maybe that's what, maybe that was his pedagogical approach was like, I mean, he talks about showing him the individual pieces. Like he show he lays out his pedagogy in that way, or he's like, you know, teach him all the defense and all the attacks from a specific guard, so on and so forth. But then, you know, using the assaulty is that sort of that mnemonic device, the thing that just keeps it locked in your memory. It's a way too, that people could actually spar with sharp swords so that you can get practice facing a sharp sword. If you're a, your opponent is going off of a choreographed routine, you know what they're going to do. You just actually have to match the timing for it. And so right. you could actually get uh, muscle memory against sharp swords and get used to being in face with sharp swords if you're following the abatimenti or the assaulti. Yeah, because in some occasions you just had one chance to get it right, right so exactly. Yeah. You you need to be prepared. And uh, for example, um, uh, there's a friend of mine, Moreno dei Ricci, Moreno, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, in Brescia. For example, their uh, their approach to um, to practice is really close to to this kind of uh, philosophy. So they they put more. Main, much focus on uh, repeating the actual assault because uh, it's a key uh, it's a key way to understand uh, at, at le- muscle level what you need to do mm-hmm. how to do uh, how to do it and uh, I can say that he is really a really good and effective fencer. Uh, even though he uh, he doesn't like the sport approach that mm. many other clubs uh, yeah. adopt, and uh, he is effective, so he has a point. Is yeah. a different is of different things. Well, I think that most uh, sorry uh, both uh, both the approaches have pros and cons, but he won some uh, tournaments. And mm-hmm. was, you know, really effective. So there's well, there is a value in repetition, and yeah, uh, yeah is. Fine. I I agree. I, I I'm as somebody I train just like they do. So I for me in particular, like I take the assaulty. I do forms. I do the assaulty as forms in solo practice. Um, you know, probably four or five times a week. So I'll go out for an hour every day and I'll do solo forms on top of, you know, teaching my classes and stuff like that. Um, and I encourage my students to do solo forms because I feel like if you, if you get in the habit of only doing sword fighting against an opponent, um, you always are kind of relying on the fact that either your sword is going to strike them or it's going to strike their blade. And people, the best way to learn control is to go through and do the forms. And like, if you, because you, you have to develop other muscles that actually learn how to stop the sword if it misses, right? So if you're always going into a specific guard position rather than anticipating that you're going to strike something, whether it's their sword or their head or whatever, um, you know, then, and you know that you're where to stop your hands, it teaches you better control. It teaches you better footwork, um, 
that's the core principle of my practice. So I'm right on board with you on that one. That's yeah, I think that's the best way to train. And as a matter of fact, we were just having a huge argument on this on the on the Hema Discord because I think there were a, a few folks um, that were really kind of pushing this modern sports psychology approach of of kind of like teaching fencing. And like I said, there's nothing wrong with that, but that's not my approach. Um, and I, so I agree with you and I, I agree with, with Marina. <laughs> that's terrible. <laughs> I'm trying to understand historical swordsmanship. I mean, I, I get why I like, I'm not going to. If your goal gonna... is to win meaningless tournaments against nerds, then yeah, okay, sure. Well, I, I, I win tournaments all the time. I get understand how it's win, then you want to do it the historical way. Yeah, yeah. Right. I get it. But I, I, I think there are two ways to get there. And I think that there are some people who disparage the historical way of getting there. But I, in my own personal experience, I think what you were alluding to with Marino, um, in his experience, you can do the historical way and you can be successful. Um, and I, I prefer it that way. I would rather train like they did. Yeah. That's just it's my a, opinion. Matter, a matter of taste. Yeah. yeah. Uh, at the end of the day, just uh, what suits your, even your, uh, your imagination. I mean, sure. yeah. what, what in your mind uh, clicks when you think of historical martial arts, what makes you feel good when you do it and the way you do it. And uh, my, for me too, is trying to make something that is in the sources uh, effective. Mm -hmm. But knowing that context uh, changes the tactics. So it's not something brainless, it's just... Uh, practicing something and know when is the time to put it in action. So when there's the opening to make a feint and maybe get to the leg with a, with a cut, that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's awesome. So um, let's give <laughs> we, we I love that tangent. That was beautiful. Um, but I'm going to kind of pull us back into our questions just a little bit because yeah. I want to get back to swords um, in that um, – so do we, when it comes to lugs in particular, right, yeah. the, or the, the Elzetti, um, do we know what their primary purpose was um, as we see them on 16th century Spadone or greatswords? Um, and why didn't swords that preceded these also use lugs? So why don't we see them on like the type 15 A's and things like that, that we're familiar with, with like Fiore and stuff like that? Well, uh, we do not have a source telling us it clearly. There's no source uh, aside uh, in, for what I know, Marozzo is the only, and maybe also uh, the Anonimo Bolognese, uh, mm -hmm. the only two sources uh, describing, using a name to describe the, the Elsetti, but we do not have any other reference in uh, chronicles, in other kind of books. There is nothing except um, artworks. So we know, for example, that uh, they were a thing in uh, 1520s, mm -hmm. more or less, already there. Probably, sorry, even earlier, far more earlier, because we have... Um, we have a sword, a one-handed sword, with a kind of ricasso with Alcetti, mm -hmm. uh, with the mark of the arsenal of Constantinople. Mm. Okay. So, a sword 
uh, crafted before the, the take of the city by the Turks, so we are talking about mid-15th century, and we have this kind of uh, wasted uh, recasso like the flank of uh, you know the torso of a people, like the really close to the to the sword in Brescia. That's really interesting. And, and you said it was really a single-handed sword. A single-handed sword, but my uh, I suppose that it could be uh, some rebuild from another blade. You know, okay. a blade with a different, with a with a tongue cut off, uh, because we do not know where this sword is right now. We just have a picture, a black and white oh. photos from oh, an auction, from an auction. Yeah, oh. uh, was a uh, was a recovery. I was able to to do rest just recently uh, from Sotheby, I, I think, and. Um, is contemporary to another stock in Madrid okay. with the same kind of ricasso. So, a, and this stock is a papal stock. Mm -hmm. So, a sword given as a present to one of the Spain kings uh, in the same period. We know that because we have the the name of the pope uh, inscribed on the on the blade. Interesting. And we have even more swords, probably all, all dated to, to that period. We do not know if they are Italian or Spanish. Uh, it's debatable because that pope was uh, Spaniard in origin. Uh, the artist that uh, did the gilding on the blade was Spanish, working in Rome uh, almost entirely for the pope, for his life. And, uh, you know, the king was uh, was from Spain, so... Was this one of all, the Borgia popes? Uh, I don't remember. I don't re even remember the name right now. Uh, I can check if you want, but... Uh, just was wondering offhand. Okay. Uh, so, yes, we had Alcetti, and probably this tells us that maybe even Pietro Monte's words had Alcetti. And uh, but we do not know exactly uh, why they appeared. We do not know if uh, is an evolution from Federich Wert or the opposite. So they developed uh, feathers according to what they uh, decided to do with swords. And we know that was not widespread. We do not know uh, the origin, if it was something developed in Germany or in Italy or Spain, uh, and was not, uh, was not adopted for all kinds of great swords. For example, we have uh, a lot of swords in Switzerland museums, uh, probably first half of the 16th century, some of them with Alcetti, some of them without, all big swords, uh, probably uh, 150 centimeters, if not longer. And maybe they were developed after uh, boar spears, this is one of my theory. Oh, because it's uh, so okay. Yeah, 
Yeah, because if you if you check some of the specimen available, for example, in museums or auction houses catalog, you find out that some of them really looks like uh, what was then developed at least for what is usually considered an Iberian uh, El Seti style, that is a style without the tip. It's like mm -hmm. more, uh, I usually, due to my design background, I say they are like uh, uh, font serif. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but yeah, we do not, uh, we actually do not know the reason. Probably just to uh, get the blade of the opponent uh, far away from the hands. Mm -hmm. that makes Interesting. Sense. Yeah, that does make sense. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it, it changes the point of percussion a little, or like the, you know, like it brings the strong further up the sword too, mm -hmm. a little bit, right? Because like your strong, almost like from a physics perspective, kind of like becomes wherever those lugs are at. Because um, you can. So. And maybe it probably is a warfare thing. Because one never know if you need to face a halberd or something that is really dangerous. You want some more protection. We need. We even have. Uh, we never have some montantes and spadone with uh, hills that resembles more side swords. So yeah. with bridges and other branches uh, developing from the from the main guard. Not really common, but not so rare. That's yeah, that's fascinating. That's interesting. Yeah. So, were there any like primary differences between like nationalities? I mean, as say that loosely, nationalities, uh -huh. but yeah, um, right. between their different approaches to big swords, like the Spanish, the Germans, and the Italians. Okay, um, the best work done on this. Has been done by uh, has been done by Neil Melville, as I said previously. Uh, most of his book is based uh, on this first attempt to have uh, an equivalent of the oxshot uh, categories for uh, bigger swords, and uh, we have of course uh, the Venetian style, we have an Iberian style. Uh, the Swiss style, the German style, and uh, uh, for the Germans we have some subcategories. Uh, most of them uh, probably dated, datable to the second half of the century, and we are specifically talk about all that really big, big, wavy blades mm. with really complex hilts uh, and balustered handle. Uh, the kind of sword that I 100% hate. <laughs> I really personally don't like that kind of style, but apparently was uh, the most common in the second half of the century and is debatable if is uh, you know a kind of sword just meant for parades or used uh, in actual situation. Uh, while we have the Swiss part, that is more battle-ready looking, is way uh, smaller in silhouette. Some of them have the lugs on the Ricasso. Uh, sometimes they have rings, 
and uh, usually the shape of the handle is the let's say the divided one I mean the one with the you know uh, mid mid length of the handle that that's widening uh, mm -hmm. I don't know if uh, there's a better way to describe it I, I mean, yeah. for example, this is Ita yeah. this is the Italian style of the handle, like so a, pretty a straight. Yeah, wasted. Okay, yeah, so yeah. the Swiss one, the Swiss one is usually wasted. Uh, some of the Iberians too, but uh, usually we have more similarities between the uh, Venetian Italian style and the Iberian one. Mm. Uh, but of course, there's a problem related to where these swords were produced because one thing is trying to divide them by style so for example we know the venetian one has a lot of fullerings mm -hmm. on the blade on the ricasso they have more uh, pointy lugs and uh, usually a straight guard with rings and we know we described the the city of the iberian one serif like uh, all these kind of features are related to the style but uh, we need to consider trends and fashion so we know that maybe some clients some customers wanted to adhere to a specific style and maybe in, in some occasions even uh, states uh, like Venice wanted to have some uh, specific style adopted for uh, for the army but we do not have enough documentation to, uh, you know, state that um, a blade was Italian because in Italian style, maybe was produced in Passau or in Solingen. Uh, we have some Iberian blades, for example, that uh, mounts uh, a Swiss-like hilt but they have mar uh, Iberian marks, Spanish marks on the blade. Uh, is everything debatable? Hmm. And uh, problem is no one actually did uh, a tariff research about marks for these big swords. We have a lot of blades with Passau Wolf that probably many people already know. Uh, but here again, there were fake was something really specifically uh, associated with Passau or was some kind of uh, more international way to mark uh, good uh, quality blades so up, uh, applicable even to North Italy production. Uh, for example, we have uh, uh, what is presumed to be uh, an Iberian Montante marked with the uh, uh, with the name lupus aguado lupus mm. is wolf mm -hmm. and just recently one of my friends pointed that maybe you know there's some kind of linking uh, was really the name of the of the bladesmith or rather some kind of connection to uh the the concept of the wolf as a mark uh, there's so much work to be done already not really so the, so much work to be done uh, to get to some stronger conclusion about that um, what else recently I was able to spot a possible early Italian style that Neil wasn't able to find uh, due to 
uh, the difficulty to find online some documentation about that. Uh, you know, searching a lot of auction catalogs and uh, archives, uh, even finding pictures of swords that we right now we do not know if they even exist uh, anymore and that kind of stuff. But we, uh, I spotted this new style and I sent the uh, you know the specimen to Neil. He was uh, he agreed that probably uh, if some of them are not fakes, because if you do not have the blades on your hand, it's really difficult every time to tell if something is original or not. But yeah, probably we spotted a new style that many people don't know about. Usually, you if you think of Spadone, you think like this kind of uh, long blade with a pointy lugs, but mm -hmm. there's this new style in between that is a mm, is a mix of let's say Venice style, so um, fallard ricasso with lugs with a straight guard uh, with a white blade mixed with uh, early. 200 sword slash montante that we discussed, like the one in Brescia. So it's like a longer recasser than the the sword in Brescia, but with the same kind of wasting. That's fascinating. And this is one of the highlights that probably, I see, almost certainly will be featured in the book when it goes out. It's going to be Great. super exciting. <laughs> I can't wait to read it. Let's go to see, shall we? Yeah. There's some great stuff on the Spadoni project about the, the use of the Spadoni at sea. Yeah. Uh, did you want me to take a few? Yeah, go for it. All right. Uh, let's see. All right. So what about at sea battles? Were big swords an important part of deck battles during the era of galley warfare? Okay. We have some sources. We know, for example, that uh, Godinho and Figueredo tells us some really basic uh, techniques to uh, swipe the deck of a galley. Uh, we know that De Grassi makes uh, a comparison between Spadone being a galleon between many galleys, but just you know uh, a way of saying is not just is not actually telling us anything specifically related to fighting on a boat or a ship. But we have some more uh, Iberian um, sources, not fencing one, but rather uh, describing um, how, to, uh, how to deal with uh, ships and sailing, uh, that kind of stuff. Honest, right now, I don't remember the exact name of the of the source but of course uh is everything in the archive so if someone after the podcast uh, is willing to know more of course can contact me um and this source describing that montante is a good weapon to assault another ship or to defend uh the deck against uh the enemies approaching and uh, there we are not talking about the galley specifically but rather, most probably, other kind of ships uh, used uh, in the Iberian Peninsula. So, we, for example, we can think about the 
I don't get the the English name for it, but the the really big uh, ships used by the Portuguese during the Age of Discovery. Oh yeah, the and, right? Yeah, Karak. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so they had, uh, for example, all the all the nets and roping uh, on top yeah. of the deck. Yeah, in some cases they even had some. Uh, I don't remember the name used by the Spanish, but uh, they had ships like with the with a roof, so the deck was not exposed. Was something mm. like more yeah. enclosed. And uh, they describe that Montante is a good uh, weapon to defend when the enemies try to, you know, get uh, get over the this kind of roof. Uh, but we need to consider that maybe in some of these sources they are describing swords that are uh, of lesser length than uh, what we think about. Uh, for example, in Venice. There are some Spadoni that has uh, a shorter blade and even a really narrow and pointy tip, uh, really suited to you know break rings of a male. But they have they actually have the kind of presence and silhouette that tells you they are not actually lo medieval longswords. They are like chunky, short Spadoni. <laughs> Got it. Okay. And I have the impression that maybe, uh, for example, against the Tarks in the battleships, you know, Tarks probably used more chainmail uh, rather than cuirass, and that kind of spadone could be useful because uh, more easier to handle in uh, narrow places like the the decks and the ships. And uh, of course, there is the linguistic problem that we know for uh, Italians and Spaniards, Montante, Spadone, Espada de dos Manos, and uh, Spada due Mani, from a certain time on, uh, from a certain period on, was used like a uh, uh, name for the same kind of weapon. Got it. Okay. So we cannot tell exactly. Uh, if they used really huge words on decks, honestly, I think that um, the bigger one were not used, or at least uh, used just in the more desperate situations. In fact, if we think about Lepanto, mm. we have some uh, uh, chronicles telling us that, for example, uh, uh, Alessandro Farnese mm -hmm. used this padone to swipe a deck and uh, take back a galley, yeah. and uh, is not the only one. We have, for example, two more uh, tales about uh, clergymen uh, <laughs> following, you know, following <laughs> nice. the soldiers. Yeah. And there's this uh, this snippets talking about this uh, this monk that uh, left the uh, left the cross uh, and put it down in order to take a spadone, and even if wounded, uh, tried his best to help the soldiers to to free a, a ship. Um, so there are sources telling that was done. Uh, some of the descriptions seems to be iteration of the same story so from another point of view you can uh, even see uh, read the uh, you know among the lines and tell that somehow is 
uh, is not 100% right. true what Some is exaggeration going on exactly here. exactly like a, a topos something that need to be described inside the uh, the story of a great battles there's right. this hero fighting outnumbered and uh, eventually he, he find a way to uh, to gain the, the treasure the ship uh, and so so that's uh, kind of like the difference between Jovio's history sorry this is kind of a segue but the difference between Jovio's approach to history and Guicciardini's approach to history Jovio is always kind of like looking for that that dramatic, his, you know, the, the dramatic moment in the battle uh -huh. or something like that. And Guicciardini is basically like, everybody sucks. Nobody knows. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk yeah. about who was the biggest idiot here that lost in this situation. It's, you know, I'm, I'm looking right now for this uh, That was kind of anecdote. a weird segue, I know. But no, that's... I spent a lot of time with Jovio and Guicciardini, so... <laughs> I'm I'm looking right now at, at Ludovico de Varathma, um or Varthima. He um he has a an account of a sea battle between the Portuguese and a like a a Turkish pirate fleet that tried to attack them um oh. in Calcutta, India. Um and it's it's super fascinating because I, I remember him specifically talking about something uh with a two handed sword. I wanna see if I could find it. Um so Yeah, is the guy um uh, he's the the brother of uh, Andrea Di Brito, or Andrea De Brito, and it's really interesting. Uh, this guy f found himself alone, the last one on the ship, and uh, was able to like swipe back the enemies for I don't remember if two or three times. And at the end of the battle, he realized that he could not uh, survive. So rather than be captive of the of the enemy he decided to uh bind himself to a cannon barrel and uh, <laughs> throw himself into the sea really oh, tragic wow. really really tragic yeah are we, are we going with that's a bit of an exaggeration <laughs> yeah but the, the the interesting thing is that we have really a lot of uh, description of use of uh, Espada Dambas mouse in uh, Portuguese chronicles. Okay. There's really a lot. And uh, I haven't published them because uh, um, it's really time consuming to uh, yes. try to translate from Portuguese. I do not know Portuguese, but I've passed so much time on sources that somehow yeah you that's kind of how I'm, i picked up italian yeah you yeah, spent so much time staring at it yeah it exactly and the same for uh, for spanish and um recently the second edition of um uh, montes book for agea uh, was published uh, unfortunately right now is just in spanish but i know that they are working on an english translation so i suggest you to uh you know Keep an eye, Keep an on, eye the, on, on yeah on the socials because uh, is really a source filled a source filled book, and uh, I personally helped the author with some of oh, the Portuguese cool. uh, um, sources. Uh, yeah, a lot of OCR working <laughs> on Internet Archive <laughs> and Google Books to to spot. Uh, yes, they, yeah, Archive and Google Books know those well. <laughs> oh yeah. So let's talk duels. 
Yeah. Do you know of any duels between Spadanistas? Uh, actually, like uh, one or two. No, sorry. Mm, we have like three sources. Three sources. Uh, okay. Three sources, but of them, I would say that just one maybe is the kind of source that we are looking for. Because uh, one source uh, tells about uh, an encounter between a, a Spanish captain and a French one. I don't remember exactly during which war, but probably is second half of the 16th century, maybe in the Flanders okay. or something like that. And uh, the action takes place during uh, some kind of skirmish. So is not the kind of civil now you know, for, duel. Yeah. It's like more, okay, there's a skirmish, now I am the captain, I want to uh, to fight with you. And the source described that they, fight, they fought with Montantes. Um, and probably they both died. Oh. Yeah, like uh, one <laughs> Wait, of them... A double kill in Longsword? <laughs> Impossible. Uh, Who could imagine such yeah. a thing happening? Yeah, but the one of them died from the wounds afterwards, if I remember correctly. Ah, um, uh, the name were uh, Monsieur de Saint Faron, something like that. Okay. And the other, the Spanish one, was uh, uh, I don't remember. However, still in the archive. So <laughs> for yeah. uh, for the after. Uh, and this is the first one, but I would not consider him it's like a duel, um, because probably they were fighting even with some kind of armor and stuff. You know, uh, mm -hmm. really, really different context. Uh, then there is another source uh, taken from one of the Italian uh, archives, so it's some kind of male manuscript. Uh, is the correspondence no is the english word correspondence when you exchange yeah. mails mm -hmm. okay yep. yeah uh, yeah yeah between uh, two unknown probably people uh, of higher rank or uh, some kind of people working for the for the maybe the venice republic okay and they describe this duels happened between two Spaniards and uh, they are not telling us much but we know that we they were fighting uh, uh, without armors okay and they both died <laughs> <laughs> so wait wait maybe modern game of tournaments are more realistic than we thought <laughs> yeah and uh, the funny things is that uh, this person uh, writing the the mail uh, is describing the duel something uh, like something really cruel and uh, bloody, something really God, painful to watch. Yeah. Okay. They they almost he almost says something like uh, painful to watch, hmm. uh, like a pity that both the duelists died in such a way, and so probably it was. Uh, a bloody violent, uh, you know, uh, right. confrontation, but they both died. Uh, <laughs> so do do you do you know the name of any of either of the characters? No, I mean, no, I mean, of, of, they, of either letter writer. 
I'd like to follow up on this. Let one. me just let me check, but you won't find this online because uh, is taken from is taken from the archive, and I was able to find it just because uh, uh, people who helped me wrote something like that in a comment on Facebook. So really, oh wow, okay, really, really esoteric. Just by okay. chance, I was able to to recover it just by chance. But let me check. For yeah, because one of these days we're going to take a trip to Italy and then start tracking down archival sources there. Yep. Get some Let manuscripts. Check. <clears throat> from now, I think. So, <clears throat> I didn't find the, the sword anecdote oh. that I was looking for in uh, Varthima, but what I did find is the etymology of the word bunghole. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry? The... <laughs> So, so bunghole, they were talking about plugging the bunghole, which is in, in, in a, uh, a barrel of, of gunpowder. Right. You know how they always had the, the hole down at the bottom? That was called the bunghole. That's where that word comes from. Yeah. So, yeah. The, you know, what we use for to talk about for something else. Yeah. <laughs> so, sorry. <laughs> that just uh, that tickled me a little bit while you're, yeah. while you're I searching. I just felt like I should share that. Big question for you, Nicolo. Yeah. All right. Okay, so you're from Reggio Emilia. Mm -hmm. Do you know what happened to the canon called Il Giulio? The one that was made from the melted-down statue of Pope Julius II by Michelangelo in uh, Bologna? It's the last, it's last known whereabouts were in, in Reggio Emilia. And I was wondering uh, if it's like, if it's common knowledge that it's used in some church bell or something like that. Uh, actually, no. Uh, no. Okay. I, 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 yeah. As a uh, totally honest, as I said to to Joss some days ago, uh, it's the first time I hear about this story. Okay. You know, Regimilia is on the metal. Yeah. <laughs> what are you saying? Regimilia is what? Uh, it's a small town. Right, there's a small town, and usually when you think about our, um, you know, geographical area, uh, people remember Parma, Modena, and Bologna, but Reggio Emilia is like the, the little brother no one cares about. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and so from the point of view of weapons, uh, historical stuff, uh, artworks, so we do not have uh, that much, at least... Not things that uh, a hemaist or a weapon passionate would uh, would want to okay. know about. I mean, no collection, no no such stuff. Fair uh, mm -hmm. Awesome, cool, awesome. Still searching for the source. Oh, thank you. So the um. One of one of my favorite characters in the historical chronicle is uh, is uh, Friar Leonardo Prado, and um, he was a, a knight hospitaller, and so he would every time he would go on campaign, and he was oftentimes in Venetian service, um, but anytime he was on done with a campaign with the Venetians, he would take to the sea and go back to being a pirate. And it says it says that uh, his the favorite weapon that he wanted to always fight with was the stucco. Um, so we we kind of determined that that's the e stock. Um, it are there uh, like examples of e stocks that are bigger, like what we see with like Spadone and things like that, or are they typically very much like the uh, the sort of like the 
Type 15As and things like that that we're used to from like the Oakshot collection uh, for e-stocks. Um, I know that in some part of uh, East Europe, there are museums with some really, 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 really long uh, uh, stock-like blades, really narrow and sturdy, but is the kind of sword that I never focused on just because there is so much stuff to uh, you know to research about that uh, it seemed to be way far from the focus of the research however uh, what i can tell is that for example there are those uh, really pointy uh, spadoni in uh, doge's palace in venice even mm-hmm. though it's just just the tip it's just the tip that is really narrow and uh, made to pierce male is the first thing I, I think about but the blade is rather wide so they are really uh, they can do both in a That's good way um, and then other slightly related fact is uh, most of the montantes we know about are really thin if compared to Spadoni and German blades. So they are kind of nimbles, I guess, and uh, probably they are more effective if you try to, uh, you know, use the thrust rather than the, the cuts. Mm-hmm. And at the beginning of the, of the research, uh, I had the impression that the difference between Italians and Iberian swords uh, was uh, more or less evident than usually uh, told by by other people in the HEMA community. But after the last months, uh, during which I spent much time uh, analyzing like more than 150 swords, dividing mm-hmm. them by style, uh i can tell that in fact there is uh quite a difference and mm. uh italian swords tend to be wider but of course again uh we are talking about the style not the the production uh you know the production um facility or the place mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so there's still some place for discussion and probably uh when the books will come out, I will have some more, uh, you know, some stronger conclusion about that. But yeah, uh, S-Talks is a completely different <laughs> word. And another another decade of research. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Get busy, get busy. <laughs> All right. Uh, we still have our last question. Do you want to do that one, Joshua? Sure. All right, all right, so you can go back and you can study the use of the Spadone from any one master. Who do you choose and why? Probably, and this is, a, is really an answer, probably Francisco Roman. What? Who is that? Francisco Roman uh. is a Spanish master. We know he wrote uh, a pretty big book a treatise in 1530 more or less so is a contemporary of Marozzo 
but we haven't found it yet. Hmm. But it's probably really interesting because it's uh, one of the first treatises talking about uh, multiple opponent combat with uh, Montante. Okay. And uh, my theory is that what we have afterwards, like Godino and uh, Figueredo, are strongly based on what Francisco Roman wrote. Because uh, we know from other Iberian uh, masters, like uh, Pacheco de Narvaez and um, uh, Carranza, Mm -hmm. we know that he wrote like... 16 rules for Montante and uh, of of course this Destreza Masters despite the work of Roman because he's Esgrima Vulgar so the not not the real fencing being despised for... <laughs> by them is kind of a compliment I mean would you want them to think well of your work <laughs> <laughs> no yeah so yeah I'm looking forward uh to someone uh, finally being able to find these treatises because probably it will be really, really interesting. And not just for Montante, but for many other weapons described. That's fascinating. That's great, man. All right. Hopefully we'll find the lost treatise of Francisco Roman. Yeah. Was it, do you know if it was printed or was it just handwritten? Yeah, printed. And we have two more, but uh, yeah. Uh, two more is in uh, second half of the uh, of the previous century, so okay. uh, contemporary to Vadi, mm-hmm. uh, Jaime Pons uh, da Perpignan, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Pedro de la Torre. Okay, maybe manuscripts, but we have Italian sources uh, telling that they were printed, but it's so early that it's debatable. Okay, well, if it's printed, you'd think there's got to be a copy somewhere. Yeah. Maybe some collectors that yeah. do not want to share, doesn't want to share with us yeah. the secrets of the real things. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, prob- I tell you, I tell you, probably is an Italian collector that doesn't want to find out that the, the Italian tradition is based on Spanish ones. So he's oh. keeping. So maybe Roberto Gotti has it. He's just not telling anybody. That is dirty. <laughs> yeah. It's at the so, museum. <laughs> Nobody's, nobody knows it's in the hidden secret collection. Oh, man. Does that mean he oh. has the original Manchialino hidden away somewhere? <laughs> so, um, yeah, that was awesome. That was I, yeah. Um, it, it sounds like we have a, a few sources to send back and forth to one another. And mm-hmm. um, we'll definitely stay in touch because obviously we love what you're doing. Um, and, and we want to encourage people to kind of pay attention to what it is that you're doing. So how, how best can they find uh, various aspects of the Spadone project, um, whether it's uh, through social media or like Patreon or something like that? Uh, yeah, um, they can follow me on Facebook. Uh, I have an Instagram account. I am on YouTube and I have a website. Unfortunately, I'm not so uh, active online due to the time I spent uh, on the research. So well, that's, that's uh, a good thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I hope to to get more involved in socials when the the books come out. Um, otherwise, they can contact me 
uh, via my email or you know by a private message there's no problem I usually try to answer everyone uh, of course if sometimes uh, people ask me uh, too many questions I do not have all the time every time I would like to to provide every kind of source they are asking for so that's a problem I am aware of it uh, otherwise if they want to meet me in person for example this December I will be in uh, in Germany for the Montante Symposium is the second edition the first one was in 2018 so some years has passed but uh, we are getting there with a lot of other montantes aficionados Tom Puey will be there Jangos oh. Winkel uh, Oscar Termors um, more other people so I will give a lecture uh, with some deepening of the artworks and big data's, be sorry, big data related to to big words, and you can find the dates and the place on my Instagram. There's a post uh, with all the information, and of course, there's a uh, an event of Facebook. You can follow the Montante Symposium. Awesome. Inter international Montante Symposium. Nicolo, it was an honor. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming on and sharing your wisdom. I really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. Good one. Bye bye. See you next time.